0: Jan, how are you this morning? Ah,
1: it's windy out there. But that doesn't make me windy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's blown a couple of authors our way.
1: I know, isn't it exciting?
0: Indeed it is. Now, a memoir reveals much about an author. What we discover about today's guest, Robert Power, in his memoir, Tell It to the Dog is revealing, but in a more than unusual way. He calls it a memoir of sorts. So, first and foremost, Robert, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jan. Nice to see you again. But
2: your memoir differs from what we'd normally expect of sorts. What do you mean? Well, I think it's a little bit self-indulgent anyway to call it a memoir. So, it's about memory, it's about reconstruction of memory... In many ways, this, uh, I wanted to play with the idea of what that space between fact and fiction, because I think you know, anyone writing a fictional piece is revealing something about themselves so in, in this uh, book, I wanted to kind of reflect on many aspects of my own life and i 've traveled for thirty years in international health as there 's a whole sections around some of those experiences, but more so, I wanted to explore how you retell a story, how you retell uh, A memory, an incident, something that's happened in
0: my life. Because it's a collection of memories in some ways, a collection of experiences, but we're not necessarily sure if they're happening to you personally. Just to give the listener an idea of what's going on here, uh, we've got a whole series of little vignettes, if you like. Here's one of them. It's called A Scandal on the Farm. How was the cow to know? She only acted on instinct. Never come between mother and child, cow and calf. The farmer's wife, impaled on the horn and bleeding to death, how was the cow to know, a mother herself, of the tragedy yet to come? As the farmer, all in black on the funeral morn, found the little pile of letters at the back of the bureau, releasing them from the neat blue ribbon, the love letters from the baker in the village, how was the cow to know as she suckled her young...
2: Then that is a true story. <laughs> that happened to a friend of my former sister-in-law's up in Cumbria in England. But, but mm-hmm. where are you in this story as we'd normally yeah. conventionally yeah. expect? Yes. Well, I suppose it's my, as I say, it's the retelling of a memory. And the memory was actually sitting with someone telling the story. So as you, as you pointed out, David, you know, in this particular book, you know, it's, some of the many of the actual many of the instances that i recounted did happen to me personally but i've maybe recounted them in very different ways um, and and you know some have been fictionalized some have been as a woman as a child as a man as a ch- as a baby as a piece of fruit as a marshmallow in a packet in a sweet shop so i'm just trying to reinterpret and rethink about the way we retell the story of our lives yes and rather than the reader
0: following the character or following a story arc of a narrative we've got an exploration of experiences and feelings which have shaped Mm -hmm. the uh, memoirist so to speak Um, and look it's full of um, delightful stories I was looking as a reader for what is holding this together. Now, I'm going to read another little story, if I may, because this is a rather indulgent way of, of going about an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, because getting onto this question of style and what holds them together, this is called a knock on the door. It's early Sunday morning. The streets are icy and most people in the street have stayed in bed, huddled under blankets, barely a nose peeping out. Mrs Jarvis, alone, sits at the kitchen table, nursing a mug of tea, staring at the pile of unpaid bills spread out before her. She's stirred from her stupor by a knock on the door. We've come to bring you good news say the two men, black suits and smiles, standing in the porch. Oh, God, she cries, running back into the passageway, clinging to the base of the banisters. Bill, Bill, come down now. It's the men from the football pools. We've won the jackpot. They've only come to the house when you've won the jackpot. Quick, quick. The two men on the doorstep look at each other. The ministerial school has not quite prepared them for this eventuality. So they open up the little sky-blue book, Did Man Get Here by Evolution or by Creation? (laughs) and wait, still smiling, to deliver their message. Upstairs in the bedroom, Bill pulls his braces up over his string vest and rubs the sleep from his eyes. Downstairs, Mrs Jarvis straightens her hair, her head spinning with thoughts of
2: champagne, a house in the suburbs and a villa in (sighs) Mallorca. Well done, David. You've spotted another real incident that happened to me when I was 20 because I got involved in a religious cult. So in my, f- in my novel that Jan, Jan interviewed me about oh, oh, five years ago, In Search of the, the Blue Tiger, there was a whole series of incidents about the twins who were Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, I went through a three-year Jehovah's Witness spell, and that incident happened because I did actually knock on many doors, and once somebody thought I'd come to say they'd won the jackpot. <gasps> But a far, far greater message. <laughs> but, but, well, the reason
0: I grabbed it out, in, in many ways, because of the style. Mm. And I, I was sort of reminded here of James Joyce, Dubliners, and these mm. images, you know, the the, the uh, Mrs Jarvis sitting there, you know, the mug of tea, unpaid bills. You're getting this picture of their lives. And so, um, is it, well... You use various styles then as well. So I'm, I was just looking for what is holding mm. these stories together in terms of your approach. There are other things like um, you, you've got images like broken glass, pebbles uh, that are li- in some ways linking. Am I going down the wrong path here in terms of things that have binding these stories together?
2: I think what binds them for me is just everyone's experience of life. You know, we all have sensual experiences, we have emotional experiences, we have physical experiences, we have mental experiences, we have experiences of growing, and I think for me, reflecting back on my life at the ripe young age of 63 is very different than how I may have seen those incidences at, at 40. Now, there's, there's one occasion there that I recount of a couple of cousins of mine in Ireland. I was born in Dublin. One of them was drowned while the other one wasn't. And there's a, that story has been in our family for many years. But I've reconstructed it. I never saw that happen, but I'd heard the story. So I was interested in how do we retell our lives. If we're sitting around here, us four and we were asked to recount a a story, we might we might recount that in a very different way if we other than if we were sitting with our child or our lover or our brother or our sister. So I think in for me in recounting any of those emotional or actual or imagined experiences and some of the just to answer your question, David, you know some of those sensations take place in, in, in a particular context. You know, it may have happened when you were looking at a broken window, or when you were in a forest. So I wanted to bring all those elements together. How do you know
0: to what degree these things have
2: influenced, affected your life, or is that important? Um, well, I think we're all the sum of the parts of our experiences. And I, when, when I, when I, when I worked on these pieces, each one I wanted almost to see, as you described, with that Jehovah's Witness scene there with the football pools as a, as, as an exemplar of how. I felt about that then, how I've retold it, and then, yes, of course it's had an impact on me. I think every incident in there, whether it's fictionalized, factional, or in the third, the first, the fruit fruit person, is how I've managed or thought to retell that. But then this gets to the
0: notion of the reader and how they're meant to respond, because you've as you say, you change persona. There's there's sometimes your first person, sometimes your third person. He, she. It's a memory of something that's happened to somebody mm. else. Mm. How is the reader meant not meant to respond? What
2: is the expectation of the, the reader's response? For me, it's about their reflection. Mm. So you know, they're only the, the, the sum of all our experiences is not infinite. So I think, you know, the themes that run through there are, you know, the, the classic ones of love, loss, growing older, growing younger, and um, experiencing travel, um, experience other environments. And I, if anything, I'd hope that the reader will be able to then think about do these experiences in some way resonate with them? You know? Well, this is how then I saw it
0: as a reader, that resonance, because... Not necessarily thinking about uh, somebody knocking on my door, although I've had Jehovah's Witnesses yes. come to my door. <laughs> but you start, as a reader, in many ways, thinking about things that have happened to you. Mm. So rather than thinking about your life um, in terms of um, uh, what has happened to you, the memoirist, mm. I started thinking about my own life, yes. and it, it
2: compelled me to, yes. to look at my memories yes. in some ways. Yes. Um, yeah. well if you look at the, dif- the definition of a memoir compared to an autobiography the autobiography is a narrative of someone's life and I like the notion of memoir because that's about reflections, experiences and emotions mm. and as you said David you know in there I, you know, I, 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 the very first vignette is my very first memory that I can recall as a two year old in Dublin with my grandmother now everyone's had their very first memory so and then going through that you know having you know been married been divorced, had children had it different Experiences, I wanted to to, to to let that unfold in my life, and then, as you said, the reader can actually then reflect upon their own experiences. But we're never sure if that, if
0: that is you, mm. uh, the person going through the divorce or, or whatever. Is that you, or is that somebody about whom you are mm. recollecting, remembering, mm. etc., mm. mm. uh, and the role of memory and, and all yes. of these sorts of things? Yes. Yes. So, in many ways, the author or the memoirist has lost their ego in yes.
2: this book. Yes. Uh, to a certain degree. That's very true. And I think what I wanted to do was to actually remove myself somewhat from the character. So, there are many, many facets, and there are many facets of all our personalities and all of our experiences, and let the. The stories tell themselves. And, you know, I, I, again, as I said earlier on, I think that division between fiction and non fiction is, there's a huge overlap between those two. And, of course, all good fiction is a reflection of that person. And it's up to the reader to determine how much of that is the writer and how much of that is their creative fictional life. Now, one thing, um, if I can suggest this,
0: the compelling force in many ways is the power of words, rather than being your life uh, or your specific memory. You've got this little vignette about words, and in some ways, this is the force that is driving you to write. And it begins the last section of the, the memoir. It's entitled Words. Fiction is not true, but it is real. Memoirs may not be real, but might be true. Words to fill a hole in the writer, and some will tell you to fill a hole in the reader. This need to create a blessing and a curse the strangeness of words letters on a page, zoom down, telescope hone, focus, encapsulate atomise, firm, make real experiences, emotions, commonalities humanness, love, hope, birth, death, marriage friendship, the X number of stories of human existence God, spirituality, beauty, food food, brutality, time, childhood ageing, visage, colour, taste all of the worldly and otherworldly experiences and more a cacophonic implosion, an explosion of words letters, an atom bomb of the alphabet now it's, it's mm. almost poetic mm. well it is poetic you're writing in a poetic style Thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing more to be said then <laughs> but then that probably necessitates a uh, change of approach from the reader because we're normally expecting to follow a traditional line Um, I found it easier perhaps to take a moment look at one little vignette, pause so in many ways these little moments um, require even more thought than one would have if they were reading a traditional arc of something
2: I I am very interested in very short fiction very short vignettes and I think as you said David each of those is self-contained but there is there are a number of themes running through, and it's for the reader to, to, to identify and, 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 and feel a part of that, that journey. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to interview, uh, end the interview there. I'm
0: getting caught up in my own teeth. I've been interviewing Robert Power. The uh, book is called Tell It to the Dog, a memoir of sorts. A memoir of
1: sorts. Well, I've got Jennifer Down, and the last time I spoke with her was about her book, Our Magic Hour. The book took its name from the artwork in Richmond, a rainbow lit up in the night. And, well, it's within one magic hour that of time travel, not time travel, distance. You've come here. I have. Back here. Yes. yes if you're published or not <laughs> within an hour, your new book Pulse Points takes us much further afield. Where do you, where do you have the story sets?
3: Um so there are a number of stories set in um in Australia but um there's one set in um a forest in Japan there's um one set in Paris um there are a handful set in the United States. Um so I was kind of I'm eager to get out of Melbourne, I think, and to um, you know, although that was uh, Melbourne and Sydney were were sort of preoccupations of the first novel. It was nice to
1: explore new territory in this one. Well, as as well as different settings, you've got such a variety of characters. You know, you've achieved this because the book's short stories. It was, as we said, why is short stories your favourite
3: form? Um, <coughs> I think. There's just no room for sort of guff or for flabbiness, Um, and ideally that would be true of novels as well. But um, a short story is so um, brief... Um, that you, you really can't afford to waste anything. Every sort of sentence, every word has to earn its place. And I think there's such beautiful opportunity for sentence-level craft in short fiction, which is kind of what I'm most interested in as both a, a writer and as a reader. Fourteen short stories
1: in mm. the post points. Yes. Fourteen beginnings. Yes. <laughs> and fourteen different ways to tell the story. So, as a reader, we have to play a bit of detective to actually uh, find out who's narrating the story because the I in the short stories can be anything from a homosexual boy, a woman having undergone a miscarriage, or a member of a gangbang group. You know. Mm. <laughs> so, when you write a short story, do you start with a character or do you start with the happening?
3: Oh, it's always the it's always the character for me. Um, yeah, it's it's character and voice, and I think uh, to me as a, yeah, again as a reader and as a writer, plot is almost always secondary. Um, and I know a lot of readers find that intensely frustrating, but um, I'm much more interested in sort of the, the minutiae of of what makes us tick, I suppose. And so, f- yeah, I think for that reason, it always starts with character.
1: Okay. Well, look, you say character, and I'm going to get you to read just a snippet from one page 147.
3: Mm-hmm. No worries. Um, this one... Oh, this is from the very beginning of of the story. When Johnny told me his mother was dying, really dying, I didn't know at first what that meant. They said ten months first, he said. Then they said three. Now they're speaking in weeks.
1: Speaking in weeks.
3: Like that was a language.
1: So, death, the language, and it's the connection that these 14 short stories together in Pulse Points. The first story, Pulse Points, gives its name to the book. Tell mm. us a little bit about it.
3: Um, it's, Pulse Points is um, about a couple who are driving home um, late one evening sort of out in, wouldn't say the country, it's, um, it's Upper Beaconsfield, which is sort of very outer suburban um, area of Melbourne just at the foothills of the, the Dandenong Ranges. Um, and they come across um, somebody on the side of the road who they believe has been hit by a car, um, and ultimately his um, his injury turns out to be inflicted by something else entirely. Mm. But he's got a pulse, so he's still living. At, at the moment they find him, yeah. he, he does have a pulse. Um, and it's
1: lovely because in uh, comparison they've just left the father who's got dementia. Yes. And you sort of think, oh, golly, is that a living death? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> so it's death that connects all of these books, all of these stories. We have a brother's death. And uh, this, is, this is really interesting to me because it's a suicide. And she, she takes, the sister takes things to Japan to a, to a, a special suicide altar place. Does that really exist?
3: It does, and um, that that was sort of the linchpin for that for that particular story. Was um, the story kind of grew out of that forest? It's called Aokigahara. It's also known as um, Tukai, which means sea of trees in Japanese, and it's located sort of at the base of Mount Fuji. Um, and I'm not sure that this is still the case, but for a while, there sort of in the I don't know 90s and, and um, early 2000s, um, it was second only to the Golden Gate Bridge as the um, as the world's I don't know, it's a bit grim statistic, oh, but um, so being I home to the the, numbers, the greatest number of suicides per year.
1: Ah, oh, right.
3: Now, that's not in the
1: book, but there's a lot of other, other things in the <laughs> book that are fascinating. <laughs> so, from Japan to Australia. So, um, we, we, there's another story we got used to here fast. Mm. Another brother, this time with blood cancer. And where does... He chooses to die. This was fascinating.
3: Um, he chooses to die at or uh, somewhere near the um the, the dish out in um. I always forget if it's Parks or Forbes. I believe it's Parks. Parks. Yes, I always get that wrong. Um, and because, because that's a place that holds special significance for him yeah. and his sister.
1: That was oh my god. The next two short stories were linked by dogs. We had one called Turncoat, and we had the male narr- uh, male narrator there, wondering whether. His the woman in his life would be like the dog and perhaps maybe turn off him, mm. turn around when they knew that he was sick. Mm. And then in complete contrast, that's such a nice, soft story, we have a horrible story of peer group pressure and you've called it dogs. Mm. Oh, why did you call it dogs?
3: Um, in the story, it's how this um, this the young men the sort of quartet who are at the centre of the story um, refer to young women um, who they they sort of trawl around looking for. Um, to rape, basically. Yes, yes.
1: Mm. That's what I'm going to get you to read. Yes, yeah, sure. These young men cruising around. They've got a car. they have uh, the dead. Well, Froggo is the lead, and he's, he's not very nice. This is page 64. Sure.
3: <clears throat> the trophies were China's idea. I didn't really get it. It wasn't like we ever looked at them. Mostly they went in the console or in the glove box, but a few things, like Casey Grimes's gold necklace with the cross, or one of those detachable brass straps we think came from Steph Horsborough, a few things we hung from the rearview mirror. The gold cross creeped me out. It was only the size of a five-cent coin, but at night it glinted under streetlights. I also thought that it was weird none of the girls ever asked for a shit back, Like, maybe Courtney Wyatt didn't care she'd left her undies on the back of Fogo's dead dad's car, or maybe she was too embarrassed. But I was always surprised about Casey's necklace. She went to school with Willie's sister. I saw her around a bit after that night we took her for a ride, but I never saw her with another cross. Probably her mum or dad gave it to her. Shit like that made me feel bad, but it wasn't the sort of thing you could say to the other guys.
1: Mm. Now, this is a short story that's going to stay with me, unfortunately, mm. but um, it, Australia's not the only place that has these peer group pressure boys doing stuff and girls doing stuff, alcohol, drugs, sex. You've taken us to America, small town America. Yeah. And you did that with such a convincing voice.
3: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of stories in here set in um the US, but I was sort of conscious of not, um, I'm not, I guess, as interested perhaps in the sort of typical settings um, of, I don't know, that perhaps we would consider as Australians, you know, metropolis, New York or whatever it is. Mm. So um, it's a small town.
1: Yeah, which, which is kind of poverty a... Poverty yeah. and la- low in expectations, really. Mm, yeah, I suppose so. Oh, this is another quote. When he was 14, he got arrested for stealing copper wiring. When he was 16, he got caught breaking into a mausoleum and stealing gold fillings from skulls. Mm. Oh, Jennifer (laughs) (laughs) Dance! What kind of uh, nice young girl are you? (laughs) I know. I think people get quite grossed out by that, but I I think it's quite common. Oh, oh. (laughs) Okay, so there's um, quite a bit of you know, there's the three I think stories in America, but yeah. back to Australia, and there's you sort of got the cross, you've got uh, the mausoleum, the undertakers and things. There is a bit of religion going on in some of these.
3: Yeah, which is interesting actually, because I'm not um, I'm not a spiritual person. I've not was not raised in a spiritual household. I think it's maybe a little bit of a fascination for me as somebody who was not raised with that, and um, and in some ways doesn't have a lot of access to it. Um, in my daily life um, What I know is very much being gleaned From from you know books and things like that
1: Because mm, there's one called Eternal Father And another one called, another short story Called Hungry for God mm. And it, you can understand All of these yeah. reasons But back to the here and now There's also Hazelwood mm. And uh, Hazelwood of course Is all closing down, there's yes. unemployment And if you're sick And unemployed and it, this was this was a confronting one. This one, mm. where but um, uh, you have to come up to really what is important, what is life over expectation of life and need to grab life out yes. of storms. Yes. Yeah. Ah oh, dear. Look, um, fourteen stories, all dealing with sort of the, the horror and the of death and what the grieving from mm. behind, but. I, one last piece I must get you to read because it's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with death. <laughs> but it's got, to, it's got to do with everything about perhaps how you choose a book. And that's oh, page, yes. from page 103. Yes, This is Jennifer Darn reading <laughs> from Pulse Points. What are you doing, she asked,
3: reading my book. What book? It's lots of short stories, I said, mostly about sad men. Why are you reading about sad men? I don't know why. I think I might stop. It was one of those fashionable recommended books I'd bought to take away with me. I like reading, but I get most of my books from other people, or from the recently returned shelf at the library. When I have to choose my own, I feel overwhelmed. Suddenly I don't trust my own taste, and I buy something with a metallic sticker on the front. This is also how I choose wine when I need to spend more than $10.
1: (laughs) I think we all know that.
3: <laughs> it's my day-to-day. With the wine, sorry. I, I try to be more discerning about books.
1: <laughs> I think it's interesting, David, I've been speaking with Jennifer Darn about her, her her favourite form of writing, which is short stories.
0: Well, in terms of selecting a book, you can always get recommendations from published or not. Oh,
1: of course you can, <laughs> of course you can. But we're both really, our authors today, are both really fine wordsmiths.
0: Yes, and in terms, of, very similar, in terms of um, the approach or the poetry and, and things like that. Um, I mean, what compels you? It, it would seem from your memoir that it, the words, the very desire to write is compelling
2: you. Would that be true? No, totally. I mean, I think for a very early age, I was compelled to write. Sometimes I wonder about the writing thing. It's a kind of weird thing. But um, I think if if you've got it in you, you have no choice. You have to keep going. Mm. Do you find the same, Jennifer?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I often try to talk about it in more pragmatic terms because I I really resist that sort of mythologisation of the artist and their process. But it truly is um, a compulsion, I think.
0: A bit like an addiction.
2: You've got to do it? Am I... Going to extremes here? Mm. I think, you, for me, I feel uncomfortable if I'm not doing it, put it mm. that way. I don't know about you, Jennifer.
3: Yeah, I think, I think increasingly um, with time and as I get older, I, I'm also realising that it's a really good way to sort of metabolise experiences mm. um, in a way that, that kind of makes sense to me.
2: Mm.
0: A nice phrase because that applies to what you're doing, metabolising your Absolutely. Experience, absolutely. To, to, to make sense of it in some ways. Is it a way you make sense of the world?
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, um, particularly, um, I was just saying to somebody the other day that I am interested in things like, you know, Um, issues pertaining to sort of social justice and cultural issues and economic disenfranchisement but I'm also not an issues writer per se so I'm interested in the way I can kind of refract those issues through the very ordinary everyday things.
0: But do we need to look at those issues through the emotional framework rather than through the logic and reason or the lack of reason say in parliament where they're debating issues
2: and get the experience of it to make a decision about it? I think that's as Jennifer said. That's another dimension that we, if 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 we if we're writers, then I think we have a a responsibility to to touch upon those issues, as both of these books have done. I can see that really clearly, but um, it doesn't always have to be in the same in, in in the same form or in the same genre. So I think you know when I think about. My compulsion to write, I think, well, if I'm going to be compulsed to write, I should actually be reflecting as much as I can on the human condition in in all its facets. Mm. And people need to reflect, which is
0: what the art or the purpose of literature is in many ways.
1: Absolutely. Jan? Oh, no. Look, I had great delight reading and uh, speaking with Jennifer Darn with her book, uh, short story collection, Pulse Points, published by Tex.
0: Equal delight, Robert Power, tell it to the dog, a memoir of sorts, and that's from Transit Lounge.
1: And that's it from Published or Not today. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast
3: produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.